Hi, and thanks for tuning in to the Think for Yourself podcast. In this episode, Dr. Mancharmani shares the audio portion of his March 11, 2021 webinar discussion with John Hunter. Well, thank you everybody for joining uh, this webinar today uh, with John Hunter. Uh, I am super excited about this conversation. Uh, John and I have had the pleasure of talking a handful of times before, and and I'm just amazed by the work he's done and his philosophy and sort of his approach to teaching and and frankly, um, and, and helping students learn and, and sort of develop a sense of complexity management as well as a compassion for fellow people uh, on this planet. So we're going to get to that, but before we do, um, I'm going to go through my traditional advertising that I start every webinar series, every one of these webinar series events with. Um, so next week, um, oops, sorry, uh, there we go. Next week, I have Michael Howell. Uh, Michael actually is the author of Capital Wars, but he's also one of the world's leading experts on the topic of global liquidity. So, you know, I hear of everyone talking about, oh, there's all this money sloshing around in the world. There's just too much money. There's so much money. Well, I don't actually know what that means. And I think truly understanding it and hearing about it from one of the world's leading experts on this topic should prove enlightening. And so next week at noon uh, on March 18th, I'll talk with Michael Howell. Um, I'm really excited actually also about Sarah Seeger. Uh, Professor Seeger is at uh, MIT in the Department of Earth and Planetary Scientists, Sciences. Uh, and she's an astrophysicist who looks for other planets. She's won a MacArthur Genius Grant and um, has an amazing story. The book that I've listed our show here is uh, profiled um, is her memoir. So it's actually a story about her life, uh, not just about seeking planets, but also about her personal ups and downs. And it's a very authentic, real story. Um, I spent some time talking with her and I'm really uh, looking forward to that conversation. That should be really interesting as well. Um, and then we have some replays available. Uh, Jim Latinsky, uh, last week I spoke with him. He runs the largest rare earth processing company, or sorry, rare earth mine in the United States. They're building out the processing capacity. And in this strategic conflict with the US-China rivalry rising, uh, his insights were particularly uh, interesting, I thought, and telling about how U.S. Uh, critical materials will prove to be really important as supply chains shift back home. Um, before that, I had uh, Danielle DiMartino Booth, who had written the book Fed Up, um, and uh, she talked about the global economy. We talked about the bond market having issues as being a sign to watch for. In fact, the bond market had issues while we were talking about it. Um, before that, I had Emily uh, from Horizon Advisory talking about technology standards and how they provide geopolitical power. That replay is available. Uh, had Kevin Warren before that, Kevin Warren, Commissioner of the Big Ten. Uh, Kevin was uh, really thought and sharing not only his personal story and how some personal hiccups early in life led to his dedication to sort of excellence, but also how uh, he's navigated the pandemic as the commissioner of the Big Ten. And, you know, what does that mean for student athletes? And how does it work with student athletes that are on scholarship and they can't play? And, you know, compensation of student athletes uh, for their images or likenesses, et cetera, for commercial purposes. So that was a really great conversation. And that replay is available. Um, I had before that, Gilman Louie. Um, Gilman actually started the CIA's venture capital arm um, in QTEL. And so we talked about technology, innovation, how to invest in technology, and sort of the prospects for technology uh, going forward, specifically in the domain of national security. Um, 
And I began this a series this year with Elliot Higgins. Elliot is the uh, founder of Bellingcat. And if you don't know Bellingcat, I really encourage you to take a minute to read up on them. Um, they are a collective of citizen journalists and others who use open source and social media to solve some of the world's most uh, pressing problems, really, uh, as they emerge. And by problems, I mean short-term problems. So when the Malaysian airline was shot down over Ukraine and the Russian government blamed Ukraine, he, through open source media and his uh, colleagues at Bellingcat, were able to identify that actually it was a Russian uh, effort that led to the plane being shot down. Uh, he also concluded and provided the evidence to authorities that Assad had used chemical weapons on his own people in Syria, even though uh, that was disputed information, and a whole bunch of other things that Bellingcat's done, which is quite amazing. And so that replay is available. Um, and then, of course, uh, last 10-second advertisement is for my book, Think for Yourself. Um, and I've also started a membership program, and that's uh, there's a link there, patreon.com slash monshermani, if anyone's interested in that. Uh, but with that said, let's actually, uh, oh, let me stop sharing. There we go. Uh, let's actually get to the main event, so to say, which is John Hunter. So, John, thank you for joining me. Thank you, Vikram. I'm excited to do this with you. <laughs> yeah. go. It should be fun. I'm looking forward to it as well. Uh, look, I, uh, I think you have an amazing background, an amazing story, but let's begin with your bio. Where did it begin? Where'd you grow up? Uh, sort of, you know, was it parental inspiration that led you to the path you've taken or, or sort of, I'll let you put in your own words. Okay, this is great. Uh, initially, I would say, of course, it, it's really... The, the influence and the benefit of having some really tremendous teachers and elders, uh, ancestors now, some of them in my life. And that really is, and it's what I say in my TED talk in 2011, that I stand on the shoulders of others to become whatever I've become and to do whatever I've accomplished. So really it starts with an homage to those teachers and mentors I had who came before. Uh, I was fortunate to have really wonderful parents my mother and father both really were teachers. My mother actually taught me in the fourth grade. Was we oh, that right? In, yeah, we, we were in, in Virginia, of course, and it was in the segregated South during the 60s. So there were limited options for school and uh, our, our community being uh, circumscribed by that meant that I had to go to only one elementary school and the teacher in that school for fourth grade was my mother. So that's who I was going to have. Yep. So as I say in the book, it was a very quiet year. I was towing the line the whole time. Mm -hmm. But they were very unusual people for the time. They were not bound by the restrictions on them, I would say. Uh, they were globalist or universalist, even though they were limited by that, that the, the laws at the time, really. So they had, a, I would say, a very quiet way of going about trying to change things. We call it the shadow school. In my community, there were people who we called the spotlight school. They would stand out front and demand change. They would be very visible and vocal and take risk for the sake of all of us. And my parents and other parts of the community were more in what we call the shadow school. They worked very quietly behind the scenes, trying to make change. You'd never even know they were doing things until an institution toppled down for some reason. They just simply look and wonder how it happened too. <laughs> so that was our approach to really the, the defining uh, race, racial cover at the time, racism at the time. So that very quiet way, that quietest approach to things was underpinning everything that I did. And of course, that's based in compassion. 
based in care about not just those in your community, but for everyone. And so that was kind of the, the seed, I guess, for my growth. Okay. And of course, when I got away from home and got out to India and so forth and connected with ancient teachings about compassion and nonviolence, you know, it just confirmed everything. So, so look, look, I got to ask, John, why, <laughs> why India? What, what inspired that sort of tidbit to go there? Because I know you went there and you spent time there, but, but what inspired it? Where did the first kernel of interest come from? Well, it's, it's not so unusual, really. There were a lot of people at the time, at the time, in the late 60s, early 70s, who were looking to the East for inspiration and ideas, particularly India, that cradle of civilization that way, uh, for how to deal with the, the tumultuous changes the U.S. was going through at the time. So I was one of the stream in a way, just, uh, just like everyone else. But my mother had always had a lot of books around now. She was a teacher. And these books, a lot of them were uh, other places in the world. And I used to spend hours as a toddler looking at the pictures of Norway, of Austria, of Zamboango. And I said, I'm going there. I'm going there. I like that. Place. That's a beautiful picture. So I had this, this wanderlust early on. And uh, of course, I was able to work at a little job in my summers between dropping out of college and going to college, I worked summer job and saved enough money to go to India of all places. I heard it was exotic, I heard it was interesting. And of course I'd been reading about philosophy since I was 14 for some reason. And I just found myself going to visit uh, gurus, swamis and yogis uh, across the country and had a fabulous time. Just was so welcomed and so felt so at home in the culture and with the people who were open and warm and friendly that the philosophy came alive to me. It really was just enlivened by the people living this way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you came back. And, and then I came back. And, and As, you, did you go back to school then? Or <laughs> I know the story, but I'm sort of curious how you describe it. <laughs> As we said, I kept dropping out of school because I just couldn't get on with formal education. And when I came back the last time, and as I said in my TED talk, I had been taken in uh, sort of appropriating Indian culture and I had the white robes and a beard and big Afro and hair and I had the, the granny glasses and I was looking very like the Beatles and so forth. And I went to my dad, and I said, dad, you know, I just come back from India. I think I might have gotten enlightened. I think I might have. And he said, that's wonderful, John. You know, one other thing you could also get though. What's that, dad? A job. Yeah, I was brought back to the real world after coming back and somehow grudgingly went back to school and um, there was an experimental program in teacher training. Mm-hmm. And I saw the word experimental on the sign. I didn't know what yeah. the rest of the program was about, but that word experimental was the key for me. And so I took it and it turned out to be teaching and I became a teacher almost immediately. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> but you weren't just teaching ordinary kids. Right, you were sort of uh, given an assignment. If I, I think, if if you, if I remember correctly, to teach gifted kids. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, my practical work was with all levels, uh, from kindergarten, pre-kindergarten, all the way through high school. But the, my first formal teaching job, I applied downtown Richmond Public Schools in the uh, central office, okay. and my supervisor frightened me, infuriated me, and stymied <laughs> me completely because in the interview, she refused to tell me what to do. I, I sensed that I was gonna get hired. So I said, well, please just tell me what to do. Where's the, where's the manual? Where's, I'm teaching gifted minority inner city children. I wanna do well, my first job. And she refused to tell me what to do. And I was so upset by that, but it turned out to be the foundation stone for everything I would do afterwards 
not being told what to do, not being given a directive. That empty space she allowed by not answering was actually to become a hallmark for the way I would teach for decades. Interesting. Interesting. And, and that's because the unadulterated perspective was what you were valuing or that you found useful uh, in the sense that, you know, sometimes when you're prescribed uh, a solution, then you, you might innovate around the solution, but you're staying within a tight band around it. Whereas if given a blank sheet, you do what mm-hmm. comes natively, almost without, you know, you and I have talked about uh, Ken Robinson's thinking and stuff like that. Uh, uh, you know, uh, same thinking, right? Sort of fresh eyes. Yes, yes. And, you know, Sir Ken, I actually got to meet him a couple of times in this <laughs> TED circuit that I was on with the whirlwind. But yeah, that... that um, being prescribed is, is really tough because you are limited and even your imagination will self-limit because you're trying to meet the goals and expectations of others. But yeah. by removing that or not having that imposed, you know, I had to look around, where am I going to get an answer from? And of course, the answer, as most of us who live long enough have discovered, is usually coming from inside first. I mean, there's outer influences that make that, but that cause that to be. But I had to look in myself. And I had to also look to my students, which was a radical notion at the time, looking to the children for answers about curriculum design and development. Because normally I'd been taught, well, we have the curriculum design. We know we're going to simply impose it on the classroom. Children will learn this. Done. But this radical approach was, let's see what they love, who they are, what they really, truly care about. And then let's try and blend and connect what they love with the curriculum that we have to teach, we know they need, and have their love, their own personal loves drive the learning because it's so intertwined, they think that the curriculum is suddenly theirs, that it belongs to them because their interests are represented in it. So that open space allowed those two things to happen, that self-introspection and that collective wisdom to come about. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. My wife, my wife started a Montessori school here in, in downtown Boston years ago, and it was the similar logic, right? Which is the Montessori philosophy is let the kids lead the way. And yes, the, the, it's actually hard work to be an instructor or teacher in that world because you got to get the material in, but around their interests and sort of let them lead the way and follow their interests, but also get them the information. So it's, uh, it's definitely a, a, a skill. <laughs> I would say, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that Maria Montessori's method, I'm, I'm uh, not skilled in that uh, uh, pedagogy, but we, we tend to find an alignment and the Montessori folks I know said that world peace game practice is very much aligned with the prepared environment, the child is the teacher, the child is the book. Those kind of principles are inherent in the world peace game dynamic organic practice that really the game itself becomes the teacher. The yep. teacher, so-called is uh, more a facilitator and really becomes less and less and less important as the process evolves and the children move forward to take center stage and become masters of their own learning. Yeah. Well, yeah, I can tell you there's, there's a lot of ups and downs in that endeavor, <laughs> uh, but, but, a, but a really satisfying uh, outcome in terms of impact. So, uh, but look, you, you raised the topic uh, and what you're most known for, uh, although I would argue uh, all your teaching is what you should be known for holistically, but um, talk to us about the World Peace Game. Where'd the idea come from? And for those who don't know, what is it? 
I mean, I know what it what is. is. I love you. What is it? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Well, after that disastrous interview for my first job, where I left so disappointed, uh, I didn't know what to do. But I figured out based on the advice of an undergraduate mentor, Miss Ethel J. Banks, that I had in Richmond. She was in her 70s, had arthritis, dressed in a three-piece suit and pearls and high heels every day, working with emotionally uh, disabled children and doing a masterful job, a masterful teacher. And she said to me, Hunter, don't worry too much about the curriculum. Ms. Banks, I'm trying to be a teacher here. What do you mean? Hunter, don't worry too much about the administrators. Ms. Banks, you're scaring me now. I mean, this is, I've got to depend. I mean, what are you talking about? She says, Hunter, what you need to do is find out, as I said earlier, who the children are really in their core, what they love and care about. And then she told me, blend or merge the curriculum with their passions. Their, their passion will drive the learning. And she said, you won't have to do much at all. You know, after that, you simply guide the process if you can. So with that, I turned to my students in 1978 and I said, well, what, I have this curriculum social studies I was sworn to teach. How can I get this across? And I learned that they loved board games. In 1978, that's all we had. We didn't have any internet, no TikTok, no nothing. It was a wasteland. So I married <laughs> board games with the social studies curriculum. So I knew they loved playing board games. The first World Peace game was a four by five piece of plywood I taped a map of Africa on, put it on the floor and had toys collected from hobby shops and toy stores and junk shop uh, cast offs and created a game with multiple pieces. And I said, we're gonna put some problem solving into this. How about let's solve all the problems of Africa? Hmm. Put them all on cards, threw them in a pile, divided the kids into countries and teams and, and parliaments and, and governments and let them sort it out. I didn't know if this was gonna work or not. I had no idea, but it was a game. And turns out they, they took to it. They started solving problems uh, that were reasonable in reasonable and practical ways. I thought, why haven't adults done this? I mean, maybe it's because we're children and it's simplified, but the principles of their solutions were valid. So it started that way and it evolved from that flat piece of plywood to a four by four by four horizontal planes of plexiglass staggered above each other. I mean, it's a towering structure and towers over my fourth and fifth graders. You know, I moved around in my assignments in my career. So one time it's in high school where the game started, then in middle school, then elementary, and then back to high school. Mm -hmm. So now the game in my, most of my career, fourth and fifth graders, the structure takes up a huge section of the classroom. We put it on wheels so we can move it aside and it towers over my fourth and fifth graders. They can't even get to the outer space level on top there's the aircraft level about at their eye level. Then there's the ground and sea level just about at their waist. And then at their knees, we have an undersea level. So we're trying to encompass or emulate the entire earth sphere of yeah. political, dipl diplomatic and social activity. So you've got thousands of game pieces on each level, outer space involved, aircraft level, planes and so forth are involved, earth level, all kinds of factories and armies and navies too, and undersea levels, undersea mining and submarines. Yep. So they take all these pieces and we give them 50 interlocking real world global problems. Hmm. And they are given these things simultaneously in a dossier, 30 pages worth. They've they got to read them in a briefing right? document, right? It's a briefing document that they all, it's a briefing document they all get and read and sort of gives them this background. Right, top secret. They can't even take it home. Parents can't get involved because they might mess it up. <laughs> <laughs> so they have to speed through this document. They're not given time to digest and understand anything. They're living in a real world pressure cooker. And they've got to solve all 50 interlocking problems. 
and they've got to raise every country in the game's prosperity by the end of the game for the game to be won. Those two conditions, all problems solved, everyone's prosperity increased. There are four or five major countries. There's a UN, there's arms dealers, there's a legal council, there's a World Bank. And these agencies also staffed with children are charged with trying to help the process along. But the crises document, this is the key. I give them a 13 page crisis document of the 50 problems interlocking. Mm -hmm. So that if one thing changes in their attempts to solve something, other factors also change. And it spirals out of control quickly. And as a matter of fact, they must fail massively to start. They always fail and it's designed to have that happen. They're learning how to live in a real world life situation by learning about success and failure. In our culture, we value success. You fail too bad, we don't wanna hear from you. So we're learning how in a safe and bloodless environment to learn to succeed and fail and go through these processes and still get to our goals. So that's essentially what it is. And the final element is we have a saboteur. Yeah. You might've heard about that. <laughs> uh, sure. There's one child in the room that I asked to uh, play the game formally, publicly, as we all are trying to win, but to secretly, privately try to destroy the entire game. Hmm. That person is kind of like our shadow self, the, the part of us that says, you can't do it, you're not worthy, you're no good. And so that kid is always applauded at the end of the game because the kids love how that person made the game so much more challenging. They know yeah. somebody in the room is that has that role, but they don't know who it is. So we well, got they, that. They, but they know there's someone who has that role. And though someone is in the room doing that. So that means their critical thinking has to go to huge heights because even their best friend could be misleading them. So they've got to critically analyze everything said in the heat of the moment under pressure and then make calculations with multiple consequences in mind. It's yeah. a dynamic, incredibly chaotic environment. And there's not much I can do to help them actually. Yeah. Well, so explain also how does each country you know, you got multiple students uh, assigned to each country. Does one of them get to be president or prime minister or how does that work? Yeah, I, I because, you know, the game is based on relationships and knowing my students, I know who needs a, an opportunity for leadership, who might uh, be better at tactical things. And of course, they will they will change. They may even go uh, in different directions than I think. But I will offer leadership roles to students and they can, of course, turn me down. They are immediately given the power to say no to an adult in the yep. very start of the game, which is kind of shocking too for them. So they can take the leadership role and then they are assigned the job of choosing their own cabinets or, or uh, staffs. So we have a secretary of state, minister of defense and a CFO and a prime minister for each country. The World Bank has CFOs and CEOs and uh, auditors and so forth. The legal counsel has a chief justice of the world court and some, some lawyer types in there. World yeah. Bank, uh, the uh, arms dealers, of course, their job is to sell weapons. And oftentimes we find the arms dealers uh, in America, all kids, a lot of kids raise their hands for that job. In Europe, I couldn't <laughs> even give the job away. It's an interesting contrast. <laughs> is that right? That's fascinating. Yeah, there's some cultural differences that really come. They're all children and ultimately they all come to that childlike wonder, but there's some cultural uh, history that influences some of their decisions too. So they're in the countries and they have the different offices, the agencies around the board, and they take turns going around the board. And that's one game day, each team taking a turn under pressure of time. They have a negotiation period where they can plan, then they execute in a declaration period then another negotiation period, then another execution as the next team takes its turn until they move around the clock uh, yep. sunwise, I guess. Okay. So give us a sense as to the types of 
problems or crises that get introduced, right? Are we talking about something as simple as, oh, that country invaded and how do we get them out? Do we respect borders? Or is it, you know, climate change and sort of these transnational problems that affect everybody? Or is it like, what kind of problems are we talking about? We're talking about everything. We throw in everything and the kitchen sink. You've got ethnic and religious and minority rights, confusions and conflicts. You've got breakaway republics. You've got water rights and, and uh, resource issues. You've got uh, oil, fossil fuels, and renewable energy conflicts. You've got refugee issues, climate change, as you mentioned, pollution, nuclear proliferation, um, resource distribution, everything we have, cyber warfare. It's all there in the game. On top of that, uh, Vikram, there are a set of random cards with new crises and sometimes beneficial scenarios that the students must choose, the team must pull every time they take a turn. So there's a sudden random chaotic element thrown into every hmm. step on the world stage. They gotta suddenly deal with another reflection of another refraction of the problem situation. So they're constantly on their toes, refining and reforming and reacting to yeah. new experiences, even as their plans are derailed. Yeah. Now, the beautiful thing is, when they get close to the end, usually about 20 hours later, they they know they're gonna win. I, I've been playing for 43 years now and I've never had a team lose. I've had a team almost lose multiple times within the last 30 seconds, within the last 10 seconds, in a realistic, practical way, pulling it out of the fire. But even so, they will go and towards the end, they'll know they're going to win. They've been through despair and tragedy and mm -hmm. they finally come to it. And the younger kids will get more excited. They'll start to speed up. They want to quickly solve every problem that's left and get this done so they can cheer. Yeah. Older students, high school students, they want to slow down. They want to savor yeah. their mastery. They actually create more problems just for fun because they know they can solve them. They say, give us more crises, Mr. Turner. We can solve anything. Yeah. And they literally can. And that, of course, later on, I'll, I'll relate how that, that uh, experience of Success led us to being invited to Silicon Valley, to the Pentagon, to the State Department, to the yeah, UN, and all. It's interesting. I want to go there. Before we go there, I know you've mentioned that you often have students read Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Mm -hmm. Why is that? And why uh, that? Because there's lots of strategy books about military strategy, negotiation, competition, great power rivalry, but you, you mm -hmm. highlight that one. Well, I wasn't smart enough to figure that out myself, Vikram. <laughs> the uh, <laughs> students, my fourth graders introduced me to that. I mean, I knew the work, but I didn't, I hadn't thought of making the connection. Fourth grader came in and said, Mr. Arnett, can we use this, this art of war in our game? Can read about it? I said, why is that? Well, my mom is a businesswoman. She reads it every night. She's really good at her job. <laughs> I said, okay, well, let's look at it. So we all got little copies. I passed out little pocket-sized copies. We looked it over one day and uh, the kids voted, said, let's put it in the game. So we voted to put a small reading of a passage before we start every session of play. And the thing they did not want to do, which was really astounding to me, let's not discuss it. Let's not figure it out. Let's not talk about it. Let's just hear it and then think about it. Hmm. So we actually have a huge empty space, a moment of silence, several moments, where I will read the passage about Sun Tzu or from Sun Tzu that day. And students will simply sit in silence before we begin play. You know, Sun Tzu's The Art of War is more about how to stay out of war, how to get out of it quickly if you get involved, rather than how to, to actually create war. So the students quickly understood this was a guide to help them 
And of course, it's, it's not so easily read. It's, it's um, multiply interpreted. So they had to really think deeply about what he's trying to help them uh, mm -hmm. do. So that comes in at the beginning of every session. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that. I forgot to mention that in the setup for how this game runs. Yeah, so before we go to a whole bunch of other topics I have and a couple other questions that have come in here, um, <laughs> but what I wanna ask you about is something you hinted at already uh, in, in what you've talked about so far, which is there's some cultural differences in how people play this game, whether people wanna be the arms dealer or not. So shed some more light on that. That seems really interesting to me to hear that, you know, Americans are more willing to be the arms dealer than the Europeans are, or the Asian kids are, or what have you. Uh, so what other cultural insights have you had from playing this game in different areas? Wow. Fascinating question. It really is interesting. I've come to understand that children are children all over the world. The game, the World Peace game is now in 38 countries. I've been to a lot of them, <laughs> training teachers. There are about a thousand teachers in the world trained to do this practice now. And I've just recently trained 16 trainers to do what I do so that when I retire, they can simply step up after the pandemic and take over. But uh, I can give you an example that uh, when we played the game in Tokyo, this was in 2017, I believe. I was there in August playing at a, a very high level school, uh, Shibuya High School in uh, Tokyo. And these students, they were English proficient as well as speaking Japanese, uh, very well-traveled, quite a few of them. But um, they still had the huge cultural uh, benefit of being very cohesive and very collaborative. My job, of course, to underseat is to uh, disrupt all conventions. And that's what the crises scenario does. We also have a weather god or goddess a student whose job it is simply call random events, random weather, random stock market, capriciously, <laughs> just to give it with no allegiance, no partisanship. Just there's a spinner that they use sort of randomly, which again adds to that uh, that leveling of the playing field. So in Tokyo, the students were playing right around Hiroshima Commemoration Day. Mm. This was an amazing day in, in the country, and you could feel the feeling of subdued quiet even now you know, decades after the atomic bomb blast there, my country having dropped the bomb. And in the game, there are nuclear weapons. In the game, students can launch nuclear weapons if they want to. There's nothing I can do to stop it. They have to sort it out. I've never seen a nuclear launch in 42 years, but nuclear threats many times. Well, in the game, there's a country kind of like a North Korean country. They were very recalcitrant and just not negotiating and, and very mysterious and wouldn't communicate very well. Well, they had threatened to launch nuclear weapons. Now, we didn't know if they had them or not in the game. The game scenario, you don't really know what this country's capability is, but they had threatened it. In the scenario, crisis scenario, the threat was implicit in the beginning. And one student, uh, one of the prime ministers, one of the wealthy countries who also had nuclear weapons said, I'm going to launch a nuclear strike. I'm going to take them out so we don't have to worry about it. He's going to do it. Now, he said that in response to the night before, the day before when they were playing the game, North Korea launched a weapon over Japan. So when the students went home that day, they heard about this missile launch over their country from a potentially nuclear enemy. Mm -hmm. They came in the next day and that prime minister said, we're gonna take them out. Hmm. This of course was all influenced by the world, the, the news. Yeah. And what I was so touched by, so moved by, was that these students, maybe eight or 10 of them, immediately raised their hands to be recognized by the UN to speak to their prime minister saying, 
you don't understand. There are three things the game allows. You can do anything you want if you can afford to pay for it, if you can deal with the consequences, and if it makes sense. So they, those three things are the only things I input at the beginning. And they know that means they can't ask me for help. So they put those three questions to that prime minister repeatedly and in an intense way and just deconstructed his entire argument. And at the end, he said, well, I've decided I'm not going to launch a nuclear weapon. <laughs> and I had to ask, my job is to simply ask questions. Why are you going to launch a nuclear weapon? Why are you now not going to want to launch a nuclear weapon? With a poker face, no input from me feeling wise. And he said, well, my colleagues have convinced me that I don't really know the consequences. I don't really know the full cost because once that happens, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't make sense. Interesting. And this was an amazing experience. Sure. I mentioned in Europe that the, the arms dealers, nobody wants a job. I had yeah. two little boys who were arms dealers, 10-year-olds, little, little chubby guys with glasses, but look like tw twins almost. Yeah. And I finally convinced them to take the job. <laughs> they didn't want it, but they they okay, we'll do it for the good of the game. And towards the end of the game, the arms dealers, in an effort to win the game, donated 600 million euros to one of the poor countries to help them get their budget up. And I had to ask the question, so why are the arms dealers donating money? Your job is to make weapons and make money. Why are you giving funds to anyone else? And they said, well, we figure if we help them and they are poor, they can become wealthier and then they can buy more weapons. Yep. And also <laughs> because we are human too, and we understand their pain. 10-year-old boys coming to that conclusion in a scenario, simulation. It, it, I mean, there are many moving, heartfelt moments I could describe like that. But again, culturally, it, it varies. But you always have the same thing. The students come together and realize we are interconnected. There's no way we can win without all of us. And that is the most beautiful flower to see blossom in that garden of children every time we play. Sure, sure. No, it's it's touching and it's uh, it's great work you're doing. So let me take a little side detour here, John. Very briefly here, we're you know we're we're a little bit more than halfway through our hour. Um, but I want to hear. Do you have a book you would recommend? Uh, I you know I've been doing this <laughs> webinar series. We've done almost 25, 30 of these now, and uh, the feedback I get from uh, the audience is they love book recommendations. They love 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 book from everyone, whether it's a professional poker player or a four-star general or a teacher or a business executive. They just love book recommendations. So I'm curious if you've got a book recommendation you'd give to us. Well, I, I offer it cautiously um, because I, I'm sensitive to the, the, the flood of information and advisements and, and uh, directions and directives people are given about what to do, what to read, what to see. But I, I do have some favorites and, and you and I have discussed and so I'm convinced that I'm willing to make an offer. Um, <laughs> my my go-to place, my pleasure reading, uh, the things that edify me, I, I read these esoteric Tibetan Buddhist texts for fun, basically. That's my, my, my main line. But then I can say that, you know, you can find in the bookstore poetry, a haiku by uh, the Zen uh, monk and Zen master Dogen. Okay. And, uh, you can also look at Basho. Uh, they, they, uh, the Asian poets really do stir me, and I really like that. Okay. And then almost anything by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, particularly his book about uh, learning to see who you really are. That was a sort of seminal or foundational book to my uh, studies in, in Tibetan Buddhism, actually, and which you know reflects on life in general. So those things, I, I guess I could say I, I uh, enjoy reading, and if you have some time on your hand, you might find them useful. 
That's wonderful. Thank you, John. It's funny. Uh, the last guest I had in 2020 was a Zen Buddhist monk who joined me on this webinar. Um, and he happened, he happened to be a social entrepreneur as well, who had used uh, uh, rat uh, technology to, to sort of, he had trained rats because turns out rats have uh, more olfactory nerves per hmm you know, a density of olfactory nerves uh, more than any other mammal. And so they have a, a very heightened sense of smell. And he taught them to smell and sniff out landmines. And so he was able to actually take a country like Mozambique that had been, you know, really suffering from landmines. You couldn't develop the land, poverty. You couldn't, de you couldn't de develop food self-sufficiency. And so he trained the rats to go through and identify where the landmines were. And they were able to declare Mozambique landmine free after his efforts there uh yeah it's sort of really really great work uh but yes came from the zen buddhist monk tradition so uh i appreciate right. the appreciate the recommendations so uh, let's uh let's let's turn towards the impact of the world peace game you hinted at the fact that uh, you've been invited to to meet with folks even at the pentagon i mean you talked to me earlier about how you spent time with leon panetta and others i mean it's not everyone that gets invited in. I don't think there are many fourth grade teachers or, or others who are teaching at uh, you know this level that are invited into the Pentagon. So what was it? And more interestingly, what did they find interesting about the work you were doing? Well, it, it was a surreal experience and I'm still in awe of what happened. And it really came, came about because of the TED talk. You know, I had no idea what I was getting into when I was invited to do that talk in 2011. I was a small town school teacher and I'm walking around with movie stars and generals and people who really had made some worldwide accomplishments. And here I am, I'm on the TED main stage and they don't even, you know, they took a risk with me. They didn't know whether I'd fail miserably or not, but it turned out well enough, I guess. But uh, it turned our world upside down here in Little Charlottesville, Virginia. The filmmaker, Chris Farina, who did the documentary film, which led to that invitation, World Peace and the Fourth Great Achievements, he and I were suddenly in a whirlwind of invitations here and there. We were invited to Google, to speak at Google about uh, design thinking. Mm -hmm. And they said, John, please talk to us about design thinking. And Chris and I looked at each other and we go, Oh yeah, design and thinking. Sure, that's exactly what the World Peace Game. Yeah, we do that all the time. <laughs> so we talked about what we did and they all applauded saying, yes, that's design thinking. We went to IDO, which was the premier design firm on the planet. They had people in the, the balcony leaning over to hear our talk. The place was packed to capacity, all the employees on their campus, listening to a fourth grade school teacher talk about a game, a simulation. And they said, yes, that's design thinking. We screened the film there for them. And at the end of the screening, a, a well-dressed woman, I mean, very, like a beautiful suit, lovely heels, amazingly coiffed hair, pearls, came up with a briefcase and handed me a card. Said, Miss Hunter, we'd like to see you. I looked at the card and it said, U.S. Defense Department, Pentagon. Hmm. What have I done? <laughs> what, what kind of trouble are we in here? I mean, I, I'm just, yep. you know. So Chris and I got in his 20-year-old Toyota Corolla and drove to Arlington, Virginia, which is about two hours from our home. Yeah. Went through all the security, machine guns, x-ray machines, I don't know, MRIs, well, I don't know what they had in there. Took our wallets, took our phones, we had nothing. We were totally in there. And we were in a conference room, huge oval table, about 75 people in the room, in uniform and in suits. And a three-star general stood up and said, 
Mr. Farina, the filmmaker, and Mr. Hunter, we've asked you here because we have screened this film, World Peace and Other Fourth Grade Achievements here at the Pentagon, four times. We'd like to screen it again for our audience here with you today because we want to have a substantive discussion with you about this empty space idea your simulation portrays. Mm -hmm. You see, we have no empty space. We are always in conflict. We're always at war. We never rest. We're always exhausted. There are people in this room who've lost colleagues, who've lost friends, who've lost relatives and family. We're always suffering. So any help we can find about how to create space, we're looking forward to it. This was stunning, this was shocking to us. We thought we were going to a heartless, faceless war machine. Mm -hmm. And here's a general admitting, we are all suffering here and we just suffer all the time. So we had this two hour incredibly moving discussion. And as we're, we're driving, driving home, we're in shock really. Two weeks later, I get another call. Hello, Mr. Hunter, Pentagon. Mr. Hunter, we loved our discussion. Would you be open to bringing your students who are playing the game now back to the Pentagon so we can have a discussion with them about this process? They think about it, yeah. This was not a warm, fuzzy photo op. This was a serious, discussion they wanted. My kids, I asked them if they wanted to go. They said, yes, they got dressed up. We rented a bus, got little ties and suits on their puffy dresses, <laughs> the sparkly shoes, and they had their top secret dossiers under their arm when they walked into the Pentagon. You're not supposed to do that, but we had them. So we go in and they take us into a conference room. We're there for three hours. They grilled my children. They asked them, when you have insurgents in the field, here's what we do. What do you do? We have a supply chain in the field that gets cut off and breaks down. Here's what we do. What do you do? And the children in a very childlike way, he said, well, I did that last week. Or that happened to me last week in the game. And I'll tell you what I did. And it was a serious peer-to-peer, one-on-one discussion. It made my skin get goosebumps because these people were serious. They were not petting kids on the head and saying, oh, you sweet children. They were seriously having discussions about world situation and it was from a childlike level i mean we were children with the, they give very childlike answers but the principles and philosophy are the same and then towards the end of the visit and this sort of concludes it an aide opened a door and the senate colonel invited us into an office and there in the office taking his jacket off was leon panetta the defense secretary one of the most powerful military figures in the world at the time he rolled up his sleeves his boys and girls i got about 10 minutes i got to go see the president but I want to talk to you about this world peace game. I want to ask you some questions. First, I want to ask you, what's your toughest problem? In one voice, they all said, well, climate change, of course. Hmm. He said, you know what? Mine too. Yeah. Because all these new defense zones are opening up in the Northern Hemisphere. I've got new shipping routes, new defense zones. It's a nightmare. What do you do? They had a 30-minute discussion, Vikram. Interesting. Substantive discussion about crises and how to deal with them. He wasn't kidding. He let them investigate his office. Just don't touch the red phone over there. You can see anything you want to touch. Anything. Just don't touch the red phone. Don't Seriously. push any buttons either. And at the very what? end of this, he coined them. Coining is a military tradition where a commander commissions a metal coin to be given to a subordinate for service above and beyond the call. It's a rare and very prestigious event. He, in a ritual handshake, coined each one of my children with a coin from his office. And finally, we stepped out in the hall, and here comes a five-star general we had not met before. He said, Mr. Hunter, he knew who I was. World Peace Game delegation, he knew who they were. He said, I'd like to coin you too. 
was Martin Dempsey, General Martin Dempsey, head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, who had seen the film and understood the children were in the same business he was in, yeah. trying to do what yeah, no, get us out of trouble. It's fascinating, and it's a great story. So thank you for sharing it, uh, John. Thank so, you, for you, you know what? One of the things that I find fascinating, uh, and I, I don't remember where, whether you told me this or I read this or I saw this in either the talk or, or, or the movie, but you talked at one point about trying to teach the children the sort of the difficulty of informing a parent of a lost child or a family member of a lost soldier, et cetera. Um, I'm curious how that goes over in the different games that you've played. And if you've got a story you can share with us about that. Yeah, this is, I mean, I'm so glad you asked. This is probably the most moving experience I've ever had in the World Peace game. And its effect was far beyond the game. In the game, when the students wage combat, they can do anything they want if they meet those three conditions. They can afford to pay for it, deal with the consequences, and it makes sense. If they wage combat in an effort to get out of trouble, they decide to go into war, and they lose the soldiers, or they lose the coin toss and determines they lost the battle. They remove them from the board. It's a simple enough process, but I decided to make it more meaningful. I asked them to write a letter to read to the group, to the entire assembled uh, teams, at the end, just a condolence letter, very short. These are fourth and fifth graders, a paragraph maybe, explaining why you went to war, why you put their sons and daughters in harm's way and offering your condolences. And so they would read the letter that they would write if they did, dear parents, I'm sorry to tell you, your son or your daughter was killed in battle and I, they had to go to war to help defend our country or protect whatever it was. And I'm really sorry, signed the prime minister or the minister of defense. And it was a solemn moment. It wasn't uh, too severe. You know, we don't have beheadings, assassinations, and suicide bombings in the World Peace game. It's not appropriate for children. Certainly those geopolitical situations exist, but we're still in a school environment. We have to be careful with children's psychological health. So we do have war as an abstract. So they read this letter. And one game we had, there was a parent in the room who had brought her children from North Carolina to play to my classroom. This parent I happened to have taught years ago in high school, so she knew me quite well. The students asked her in the game, because she was in the room when we had to read this letter, if she would read it, because there's, there's a mom over there, could she read the letter? You know, it's to her. So she started reading the letter and she just burst into tears herself. It was so piercing. But the real depth of this, and I'll finish with this, is after the TED talk, I was sort of on tour and I would go to different schools and talk about the World Peace Game and they'd fly us in, we'd stay in a hotel, big celebrity thing, you know, I'm just a small town guy. But I flew to one school in Nashville and as we got out of the plane, a long late model black Lexus came to pick us up, shiny brand new car. And out of the car stepped a young man, well-dressed, nice suit, haircut, nice well-cut hair, hair, shiny shoes, a big gold college ring on his finger. I took one look at him and Vikram, I'll admit, I was arrogant. I was smug. I don't know where I got this attitude, but at that moment I looked at him and I thought, rich kid, I know exactly what he is. Never done a day of work in his life. He's a teacher at this fancy school. He's got it made. He didn't know anything about where I come from, blue collar life. Yep. So I got in the car, he's very polite. I sat in the passenger seat next to him and we're driving through the Tennessee countryside on the way to his school. And he says to me, Mr. Hunter, as he's driving, I like that film, that world peace and other fourth grade achievements that you did. Oh, really? I mean, I was so smug. Yeah. Why do you like that? 
He said, well, I like it because you have the students write that letter, you know, the letter to the uh, parents of the soldiers that they lost in the battles. Oh, really? And why do you like that? And he was quiet for a long time, mm -hmm. just driving through the countryside. And finally he said, about a year and a half ago, I was a Marine Corps commander before I became a teacher. This is a young man. He's maybe 30, 31, 29. Mm -hmm. Marine Corps commander, and I served several tours in Afghanistan and Iraq. And my humility started to come up then finally. I go, oh my gosh. And he said, I like that you have him write that letter because I was in the Battle of Fallujah. Fallujah, you may know, was one of the worst street-to-street, house-to-house, hand-to-hand combat situations in modern warfare. And here's a young man, the prime of his life, telling me he was in that situation. Mm -hmm. I don't know where I got the nerve. I said, so, so how was that? And I saw his hands tighten up on the steering wheel. I saw him stare, stare straight ahead. And he said, it was kinetic. It mm -hmm. was a kinetic situation. That's all I would say. But then he finished and he said, I like that you haven't write that letter, Mr. Hunter, because I had to write that letter. I had to make that phone call. Yep. I had to go knock on the door of a family member and tell them that their loved one, their father, their husband, their brother, their mother yeah. had been killed and was never coming home. Yeah. So Mr. Hunter, you keep having them write that letter. So maybe someday, We'll never have to write that letter again. Mm -hmm. You keep having to play that game. Here I am, a small town school teacher. And here's somebody, a young man in the prime of his life who's seen the worst what humans can do to each other. And he's telling me, and nobody essentially, you keep having those children play that game. So you never know the effects of being a teacher, how far beyond your classroom you're teaching even a simple word, a gesture may go. Sure. You may even be reaching through time and the children of your children, the grandchildren of your students may pass on things you said, even inadvertently. Your effect may go through generations, through time. Yeah. So you really need to be on your A game and to be mindful of everything you do in a classroom. The effect can be so profound, can go so far beyond the children's even lifetime now. Yeah, you know what's what's fascinating, John, is I and I think you and I have discussed this in the past, but uh, you know, you're not really teaching peace. You're teaching <laughs> compassion. You're teaching empathy. You're teaching the adoption of you know. I'm going to put this in my language, so so pardon uh, pardon me for doing so. I hope it's not disrespectful, but I think you're teaching the adoption of multiple perspectives, and I've seen that useful in the identification of financial bubbles. I've seen it useful in the navigating of uncertainty. And fundamentally, it's about addressing potential conflicts in a way that's respectful of another perspective, that your perspective is not the only one, that in fact, yours is merely one and all perspectives are biased, incomplete, and therefore limited. So don't rely on any one perspective. Right. I mean, that's sort of I think you and I have talked a little bit about this, but the, the idea of of compassion and, and teaching them how to think, not what to think. Well, great. But, you know, exactly. But what you say, your insight, your wording is actually better than mine. It's perfect. It's the, the game itself teaches compassion. I don't. 
I simply allow the process to be the teacher. And what we find is when students and children and people are thrown into chaos and they discover their interconnectedness and their interdependency, yeah. their dependent arising situation, that compassion automatically arises because it's the only way forward. It's the only way to survive. It's the only way they will ever be able to solve their problems. And it's it, we almost consider this tangential, but it's actually core and central to all of our solutions. We don't teach it that way. We don't necessarily believe it always, but certainly it, it has proven itself to be the case. Having multiple perspectives, a multicultural world, a multi-gendered world, you know, you, you, you can't come from your house saying, well, the way we did it at home is the way it's going to be because there are so many households. We call the World Peace Game a wisdom table. We gather around this wisdom table to allow the independent wisdoms to merge and become co codependent, interdependent. And then we can make sort of a general wisdom that's still multi-tentacled multi, uh, in a way, that still has many aspects, depending on the situations at the moment. But you're so right. And I love the way you said that. Thank you for saying that. Oh, I, I'm glad you think the game teaches compassion. Yeah. So let me, let, we're running out of time, but this is an important question. And I think it's worth asking to get your thoughts, John. Um, so the World Peace Game suggests that it's country as the unit or nation state versus another one for intractable problems. But if really what you're teaching is compassion and adopting multiple perspectives, one could likely apply that even within a country. And I'm gonna focus for a moment on the United States um, that we have plenty of troubles domestically within our borders that perhaps can benefit from similar thinking and respect for others, compassion that we all can benefit if we're all doing well. Uh, and that logic can be applied domestically. You happen to at least be based in, in Charlottesville, um, you know, I, I think you said you weren't there during the events that took place there, those, uh, those unfortunate uh, racial, uh, racially oriented events, let's, let's say that, uh, that took place uh, and the unfortunate nature of that. But honestly, let's just make it more general than, than Charlottesville. Is there anything that we can take either from the World Peace Game or just from your general teaching logic and approach that can help us sort of make America better, you know, independent of what happens outside our borders. We have a lot of work to do internal of our, of our borders, right? Internally. Uh, you know, I, I never offer advice because again, I have a limited perspective as we said, but my experience has shown, uh, and this is experience with the game practice over 40 years now, that there are four things that generally come about for being able to be helpful to others. And the first step is self-introspection. Uh, looking at one's own mind stream at a minute level daily, relentlessly to weed out those things we know that are problematic and troublesome so that we can present more space in every situation. And we have to do this continuously. It's not just a one time, I know what kind of ice cream I like, I know I like Beyonce and Metallica, that's it, done. No, we, we have to go deeper and more regularly. So we have that self-introspection as the first step before saying I'm going to solve any problem or anyone's situation, help anyone, I've got to look to my own house first. And that's continuous, it doesn't get solved in a day. Secondly, we look at the collective wisdom of the people around us, not thinking that one person, one group, one mind, one country, one leader is going to solve it all. Impossible, we're interdependent. It's almost a quantum physics principle, interdependency. 
But if we, we ignore that at our peril, you know, we have old world physics where there's only an action and a reaction, but we ignore the quantum field effect of things at our own peril. Then there's passion, tying or coupling people's passions with the goals that we need to achieve. So they feel the investment, they feel ownership, they feel empowerment. Students feel empowerment in the game when you say, students, how are we going to do this? They look at me and say, but you're the teacher. Aren't you supposed to tell us how we're supposed yeah, to do this? <laughs> and they suddenly realize that you're offering them power in their own academic and intellectual destiny. They get excited and they're more than happy to move towards those goals. And finally, as you said, compassion. Again, I won't even have that as a, a, a positive ideal or outcome because then again, it's another school of thought trying to be imposed upon others. I simply say I've seen that arise from our interdependency when we are in chaos, once we see the interdependency. Mm -hmm. So that's what I would say, starting with self-introspection, my yeah. experience has shown that's been the best step forward is to first look in, look within and get our own selves before we criticize or even observe to, to criticize others at all. Yeah. Well, what I also like, John, and, and this might have to be our last question because I know we're running out of time here, but you know, one of the things that comes across in that game logic, which I think has applicability both within countries as well as across countries, um, is this sort of dynamic of do the ends justify the means or, or what have you. And I know you've got this great story, so uh, I, I'd love you to, to share it about the, the, the poor country defense minister who, uh, who proactively decides to start war, um, even though this is a peace game, right? I mean, wait, hold on a second. And, you know, it's sort of, I think, I think it's great because it's sort of, well, hold on, everyone's upset, but maybe there's a reason we should withhold judgment for a bit. So maybe you can yeah. tell that story and we'll, we can try to wrap sure. up on that because I think it's a great sure. story. Move along. The, the, uh, the book, World Peace, Another Fourth Grade Achievement, the same title as the film, recounts the story and it was uh, maybe 15 years ago, the prime minister little girl of the poorest nation in the game, the game uh, starts with countries at different levels of wealth and prosperity, was told by her prime minister, uh, I forget her name, Marcy, I think it was, Marcy, Prime Minister Marcy said, don't do anything, we don't have any money and we're too small and everybody's more powerful and they could destroy us. And this girl tried to convince her prime minister Marcy that I believe Prime Minister Jarrett in this big oil rich country to the south of us is trying to take over the world. I know Jarrett, I know what he's gonna do. You can see it, he's moving troops around. She said, that's just what he's doing, Marcy said. Just don't do anything. Yeah. And so finally this girl, I think her name was Lily, took it upon herself out of the blue. And of course I have no control or input in the game whatsoever. I keep a poker face no matter what they do. She marched her army, her infantry, across the border into this oil-rich country and surrounded the oil reserves fields in that country in a blitzkrieg, a sudden movement. She had her meager, small, antiquated air force, like five planes in the air over the field, threatening cover and bombing if anything happened. She had her meager tank force of like three tanks crossing the border to help support the troops. And her Prime Minister Marcy was livid. I told you not to do anything. I ordered you. How could you do this? And of course, chaos broke out. And I'm brokenhearted because it's a peace game. Here's my dear friend, Lily, whom I've taught for a year. And she's going against every principle that I have in the game. She's creating war. And I can't say anything. I just simply ask her, could you tell us what you're doing, uh, Minister of Defense, um, uh, Madam? She said, I can't tell you. I just know what I'm doing. 
And she kept her own counsel. Okay. She did this three days. She wouldn't reveal what she was doing, but she completely stymied that country. They couldn't do a thing. Come to find out a few game days later that Prime Minister Jared was indeed on a battle plan to dominate the entire game. He was planning on putting troops in the field. He was preparing his military. Lily intuited this, knew it, and made a preemptive strike to lock down his oil reserves so he could not carry out this military campaign. We had to stop the game and have a huge discussion about the philosophy. Was this right or wrong? to have a small war to avert a larger war? Is this conditional good? Is it all good? Is it bad? I don't know if we ever came to any resolution, but the discussion that nine-year-olds were having about the philosophical principles were just mind-blowing. It was just astounding to see this happen in a fourth grade classroom. And I didn't do it. The game fostered that and they made their own decisions. They made of it what they will. Yeah. So that was how it came about. Well, that's a fabulous story, John. And I think it's a great way to end this uh, because I think the work you've done and sort of the game has accomplished uh, is, is really impressive. And I think the, uh, you know, uh, one can hope that, uh, you know, they keep writing the letters so we don't have to write more. Uh, th that's one thing for sure. But but you're really, you know, helping teach critical reasoning and uh, and like I say, that compassion and empathy, which almost can't be taught. It almost needs to be experienced in some way. And I think that, um, you know, it, it's amazing work you're doing. So thank you. Uh, thank you for the work you've done and are continuing to do. Thank you for taking the time today to spend with me and to share your story and some of the lessons. Um, and, and I really appreciate it. So thank you, John. Thank you, Thikram. My, my students are coming to you. They're coming to finishing school right after they finish with me in the World Peace Game. So they're, they're on your All right, watch. perfect. Well, thank you. And thanks everyone for listening. And I will see everyone on the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. If you find value in these discussions, we hope you'll consider supporting this series by becoming a member of the Think for Yourself community. More information can be found at www.patreon.com slash mancharamani. And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 